So I've titled our message, Walking in the Fear of God. Say that with me. Walking in the fear of God. One more time. Walking in the fear of God. Proverbs chapter 14, verses 26 and 27 say, In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. So, so Proverbs says that a life flowing with confidence and nourishing the next generation is a life lived in the fear of the Lord. If you want life that gushes cool, crisp, sweet mountain water, and if you want to be a resource of refreshment, a supply of strength, and a safe haven of help to others, then walk in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the fountain of life. Proverbs 14, 26 and 27. I I think that's a remarkable statement, church family. I mean, I would have expected the Proverbs writer to say, the joy of the Lord is a fountain of life. Or the peace of the Lord. Or the love of the Lord is a fountain of life, right? But why the fear of the Lord? (laughs) I mean, isn't the fear of the Lord the reason why people avoid the Lord? And haven't, haven't some of us had negative experiences with pastors who use the rhetoric of fear to manipulate? Pastors who employ fear to induce toxic guilt? I mean, do people really want to gather around someone who makes them afraid? Why would I come to a divine bully? And they don't want to have to deal with someone who they think is mad at them or annoyed at them or someone who enjoys intimidating others. Huh? So why this phrase, fear of the Lord? What is, what is the fear of the Lord and how is the fear of the Lord a fountain of life? And, and how does walking in the fear of the Lord give confidence? And how is that going to provide shelter for my grandchildren aren't you curious about those questions say yes good (laughs) not that I'm manipulating you (laughs) say yes (laughs) well I'm curious about those questions so if you're curious let's meet me in Nehemiah chapter 5 All of this is to introduce our chapter for today, Nehemiah chapter 5. So we are journeying through the life of this amazing servant of God, Nehemiah. Nehemiah was chosen by the Lord to revitalize the city of Jerusalem. He served as cupbearer for the emperor of the Persian Empire, Artaxerxes. The cupbearer was a type of secret service officer. 
Nehemiah lived in the palace of the emperor 450 years before the time of Christ, but God sent Nehemiah to rebuild the city where Jesus would one day preach. And revitalizing Jerusalem meant building a wall around the city because if there's no walls, there's no security, and if there's no security, there's no city. And so here in Nehemiah's memoirs, we're reading about this project that began, and it's gaining momentum. There's buy-in from the community. We read that in chapter 3. In chapter 4, Nehemiah has to deal with an external threat. And once that threat is faced, Nehemiah is faced with an internal threat, and that's chapter 5. And that threat can only be addressed by walking in the fear of the Lord. There it is. That's how all this ties together. So let's read Nehemiah chapter 5. We're going to do the whole chapter, but I'm going to read up to verse 13. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we've borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now, our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. And I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not walk in the fear of the Lord to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, and their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests. And made them swear to do as they had promised. And I also shook out the fold of my garment. And said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. 
And all the assembly said, Amen. And praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. This is the word of the Lord. Wow. Do you hear the internal threat? Listen, I believe this. it's It's not persecution from the outside or oppression from the outside or challenges from the outside that'll do us in as a church family. It's not. It's not. It's internal stuff that'll take us out. And we see that here. We saw that when we studied 1 Corinthians, didn't we? It's internal threats. Threats that can only be faced by walking in the fear of the Lord. So so in these verses, we learn what the fear of the Lord looks like. So, so, So walking in the fear of the Lord, we're looking at the fear of the Lord is really something good, something healthy. We, we, we understand that there's a toxic fear, that there's a manipulative, evil kind of uh, fear. That's not what we learn in Nehemiah chapter 5. What we learn here is that that walking in the fear of the Lord is, is, is healthy and wholesome and, and is evidence of maturity in God. And specifically in Nehemiah, we learned that walking in the fear of the Lord causes us to deliberate, deliberate, advocate, advocate, and then demonstrate, demonstrate. Those are three key words that we'll see uh, that answers this question. What does the fear of the Lord look like? Well, it looks like someone who deliberates, someone who advocates, and someone who demonstrates. That's where we're going today. Well, verse 1 blindsides us, doesn't it? (laughs) Now there arose a great outcry. A great outcry. Um, outcry. It's the same word in Genesis 27, 34. When Esau gave an outcry after being tricked by Jacob. He gave an outcry to Isaac. Don't you have a blessing for me, father? Jacob stole my blessing. He's a deceiver. Bless me. Bless me. Great outcry. It's the same word as uh, Exodus chapter 11, verse 6. When Egypt gave an outcry after that final devastating plague, there arose a great outcry. Well, who gave this outcry? Well, we see there are three groups in verses 2, 3, and 4. Look at verse 2. The first group, they were folks who had no land, and they lived hand to mouth. And they gave a great outcry. They said, we can't feed our children. There's no food. So we find out there's a famine that's going on in the middle of this project. And the famine has wrecked the economy. And families are going without. And that verse 1 mentions their wives indicates how serious it is. That's the first group. Then another group gave an outcry. And they said, look, we have to mortgage our lands and we've got to mortgage our vineyards and our houses just so we can get cash to purchase food which has been inflated because of the famine. Outcry. Oh, and then there's a third group. Verse 4. 
We, we've got to do all the above and then borrow more just to pay the emperor's taxes, which will go to Susa. And so, the, so they've got to take out loans to pay taxes, and those loans, those loans, are you sitting down? Those loans charged anywhere from 18% to 50%. I am not making that up. That was so bad, it was so bad that children had been contracted out as indentured servants in order to make ends meet. My child works on your land for X number of years for food and taxes. That's, that's, how, that's how severe it is. And you may be thinking, those Persians, those evil Persians, who do they think they are milking the people of God? Ooh, those Persians. That's not right. It's not right, but it's not the Persians. Do you see verse 1? The outcry was against literally their brothers, the Jews. And look again at verse 5. Our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. I mean, Nehemiah hasn't even had a second cup of coffee yet. And I mean, he's been blindsided by this great outcry. Where did this come from? Hmm? Well, it's likely been there for some time. Uh, Isn't it true that, you know, when you're involved in something stressful and consuming, like building a home or getting married or completing a graduate degree or grinding your way through a pandemic, those stressors are going to squeeze you And whatever's on the inside is going to come out. Amen? That's true, isn't it? So, 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 but, but please understand, those stressors, uh, those stressors simply revealed what was already inside. See? And so, whatever you were once able to contain or keep a lid on, has now been leaking its way out because of the pressure. Uh, only in this case, there's no leak. It's an eruption. And Jerusalem's wall was being built between the harvest of the grapes and the figs and the olives and before the planting of the grains. And, and though the wall was a short-term project, it created yet, uh, yet another stressor which just squeezed the existence of some serious systemic injustices. And Nehemiah finds out about it, and he's livid. And he's got to deal with this right now, see. He, he can't say, well, you know, come on, it's not, it's not that bad. Let's not complain. Let's put on a happy face. Let's all be positive. Let's go to Positiveville. Let's stay out of Negativeville. Come on, we've got to finish the wall. Can't do that. Can't do that. Why? Well, because people have to eat. That's why. People are hungry. People are hurting. And verse 6 says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. (laughs) Now, let's just push the pause button on that verse right there. Because this is a very critical verse here. So, So, how will Nehemiah be a fountain of life? How will Nehemiah be a refuge 
when he's full of rage. See, let's talk about anger for just a moment. What is anger anyway? Let's define that term. How about this one? Simply put, anger is, that's not right. I'm against that. Anger is an active stance that you take to protest what you believe is wrong. Anger is our reaction when something we think important is not the way it ought to be. You see something that crosses the line and you find it offensive and you want it eliminated, and your anger expresses the energy of your reaction. That's why anger is a moral emotion. It's it's a statement about what matters. Human beings make moral judgments, and therefore human beings do anger, period. Like God, you are wired to size things up and to feel displeasure at wrong and then to act in order to do something about it. Would you want to live in a world with no value judgments? No, of course not. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. How much of Nehemiah was involved in his anger? All of him. All of him. See, see, anger is something Nehemiah does. Anger is something you do. You say, Pastor, that's just too obvious. Well, it is obvious. It's, It's so obvious it often gets overlooked. And usually people pay attention to only one part of what's going on in anger. And the part they leave out is you. And when you get left out of what's going on in anger, then anger becomes an it. You deal with it. You harness it. You manage it. You rid yourself of it. But you're not necessarily responsible for it. It is going on inside of you, but you aren't doing it. And the fact of the matter is, anger is not an it. Anger is not just one part of you. Anger does not happen to you. You do anger. Does that make sense? And Nehemiah's temptation is to do anger in a way that does not reflect the righteous heart of God. And church family, we can talk all day long about righteous indignation. And we can, we can talk about what Paul says in Ephesians uh, about in your anger do not sin. And we can also talk about James chapter 1 verses 19 and 20. Where he says be quick to listen, slow to speak. And slow to become angry, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And I've had to learn that the hard way. That's why, that's why the verse following verse 6 is so important. Do you see it? See it? Verse 7. Immediately after verse 6, verse 7 says, literally, literally, my heart deliberated within me. So he's not denying the anger that he feels. 
He's not, he's not trying to suppress the frustration that he feels. He just realized that if he is going to walk in the fear of the Lord, he needs to deliberate his response to that which insults God. So Nehemiah needs to deliberate. To walk in the fear of the Lord is to deliberate how I respond to that which insults God. And so verse 7 says, my heart deliberated within me. So in Nehemiah's anger, whatever happens next will be deliberate. So he pushes the pause button. Oh, Lord, what, what do you want me to do next? You sent me here. There, I've had to face external pressure from Sanballat and Tobiah. There's this pressure of finishing the wall. And now there's this outcry of injustice from the inside, from your people. God, the wall is meant to protect something, but I don't want to protect this. This isn't right. How can I right this wrong? So, in, so you see, in my anger, there's something more important than me. It's God and his reputation, and his glory. And if I don't make sure that God is first, I'm going to want to be first. And the fear of God keeps God first. And so after Nehemiah felt the anger, he deliberated within himself. And the scripture says that after he deliberated, he prosecuted. That's verse 7. Verse 7 says he brought a lawsuit against them. Now, in their system of justice, he's the governor, he's also the judge. Well, what's the charge? Verse 7, you are exacting interest each from his brother. Now, we 21st century Americans read that and think, what's the problem? I mean, I have to pay interest on my loan, my house loan, my car loan, my school loan. What's the problem? Here's the problem. Here's the problem. In ancient Israel, in the law of Moses, the purpose of loaning money was never to make money. The purpose of loaning money was benevolent. And so, so loaning money was not a, a handout or an opportunity to make money. It was a hand up. And you can read about this in Leviticus 25. I've got the verses up on the screen. If your brother becomes poor and cannot man maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God. See, walking in the fear of God. Fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. For I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan to be your God. And then Leviticus 25 goes on to say, If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. You see the, the thinking here? God Del delivered his people from slavery he did not deliver his people to slavery so that in the land of promise they might buy and purchase others as slaves that, this, God says this is not how I think he shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner he shall serve you until the year of jubilee and then he shall go out from you he and his children with him and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his father's 
for they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but you shall fear your God. See? Now, now Israel was allowed to charge interest to non-Israelites. Okay? But embedded in the law of Moses was the principle that your fellow Hebrew was your kin, your brother, your sister, your family. So you treat them accordingly. And Nehemiah is just aghast that the Hebrews are charging interest against Hebrews and then selling their fellow Hebrew children. You're just selling them back and forth, raking in the profit with each transaction. What's the matter with you? And verse 8 says, they were silent and could not find a word to say. And their silence testified to their guilt. Wow. And so Nehemiah, having deliberated then advocated. You see, to fear the Lord is to advocate for the Word of God. Sometimes it takes a godly person to challenge us to do what we know we ought to do in the first place. Walk in the fear of God. That, and that's, that's verse 9. Ought you not walk in the fear of the Lord our God to prevent the taunts of the nations our enemies? Nehemiah tells how he and his administration, they're making loans, but they're in accordance with the law. See, they're not charging interest. Let the exacting of usury, that's interest, stop. So, so Nehemiah says, here's what the Word of God says. Our current behavior does not align with who we are as the people of God. God called us out to be his own people. We are a kingdom of priests. We are his elect among the nations. We are his own possession. God did this out of no merit on our part. He did this solely based on grace. He chose us. The demonstration of our lives must match the profession of our election. The demonstration of our lives must match the profession of our election. Nehemiah says, you're living like Persians. You're not Persian. Oh, we, you know what? We need to hear this. We need to hear this. This is going to hurt. Right now, there are voices beckoning you to put national identity, sexual identity, political identity, materialistic identity, vocational identity, educational identity before your identity as the people of God in Christ Jesus. And what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Galatians, when he says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. It is Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That is walking in the fear of God. Not cowering, but realizing that Jesus loves me and he gave himself for me. How could I ever live in such a way to disrespect that? Oh, Jesus, help me. Help me. To, to walk in the fear of the Lord is to respect the will and desires of our primary sovereign, Jesus, the resurrected one. His will as revealed in his word. And how will we ever know his will if we're not reading his word? To walk in the fear of the Lord is to deliberate 
how I'm going to respond to that which insults God. And then it is to advocate for God's word. And Nehemiah says, I want you to return to the people what you've confiscated. Let, let, let your brothers and sisters eat. Let their families gather together. And verse 12 says, you're right, you're right. And they said, right? We, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And then Nehemiah says, no, 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 not so fast. Let's get the priests in here. <laughs> Promise before the priests. I called the priests and I made them swear to do what they promised. And then Nehemiah does something that is uh, 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 demonstrative of the, the prophets of the Old Testament. He's got, his, he's got a robe on, okay? And he stands before the people and he shakes his robe like this. Very dramatically he says, may God shake you out of the folds of his robe if you don't keep your word. Get it? Got it. Good. That's what, and that's, that's, that, that's verse 13. And all the assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. <laughs> so, you know, the fear, the fear of the Lord is a good thing, church. And why is it good? Because, because it means I'm walking with the conscious awareness that God loves me like a, like a tender father loves his child. And, and, and so there's this, there's this mixture. And it is a mixture of pleasure and reverence, joy and awe. To walk in the fear of the Lord means I'm going to live my life knowing and feeling and acting like God is present and powerful and available and observant and that he's for me. He's for me. And that when I'm in the presence of God, I'm changed. You cannot be in the presence of God and not be changed. When you're in his presence and you know and you experience it, it changes how you feel and live and act God is near. You're never alone. He's with you moment by moment. It means, God, I love you so much. I don't want to do anything that would insult or displease you. God, you matter to me. Listen to me. We talk all the time about how you matter to God. But church family, does God matter to you? See, does God matter to you? Well, that vertical reality affects your horizontal relationships. And so when I walk in the fear of the Lord, I, I, I look at people not as potential clients for profit. I look at others not as revenue streams. I look at others as fellow image bearers. I look at my brothers and sisters in Christ as family in Christ. And church family, I, I understand that in a congregation like ours, commerce happens between us, and that's not wrong at all. But woe to the brother or sister in Christ who defrauds another brother or sister in Christ. And candidly, I mean, I've been here long enough to see folks, you know, attend for the primary purposes of commerce, not community. And, and the folks who come for community stay. To, to walk in the fear of the Lord is to acknowledge that there is a God who is sovereign over the heavens and the earth 
And this God is to be honored and respected and worshipped and held in awe and prized and appreciated. And so how we think about God will determine how we treat others. It's no coincidence, it's no coincidence that the greatest commandment is to love God. And the second greatest commandment, which is like it, is to love others. And our vertical relationship with him impacts our horizontal relationships with others. And so Nehemiah's anger leads him to deliberate and then advocate. What's the point of a rebuilt Jerusalem if God's people act like Persians? Persians charge interest. Persians sell slaves. God's people do not. And so new walls mean nothing without new hearts. God wants new hearts. And thank God, as we read, the people were given a spirit of repentance and they made good on their word. And it's because they wanted to walk in the fear of the Lord. Walking in the fear of the Lord. To deliberate, to advocate, and then in verses 14 to 19, to walk in the fear of the Lord is to demonstrate the goodness of God. So in verses 14 to 19, we see another side of Nehemiah. This is, this is kind of Nehemiah at the office. Um, so Nehemiah, as governor of this area of Judah, had a required, required custom of hospitality as governor. And so every day for 12 years... Every day for 12 years, Nehemiah hosted a banquet for 150 people. They, these were 150 officials. They, they were the leadership class of that territory. Every day, an ox was slaughtered, as well as sheep and birds and all kinds of wine in abundance. Okay? An ox was slaughtered. Now, the commentators didn't tell us how big the ox was, but my butcher said it was 800 pounds. Okay, sheep and birds and all kinds of wine in abundance. Now, that many people can't possibly eat that much food every day. <laughs> okay, so, and, and nothing got wasted. So what happened? Well, there were leftovers. And those leftovers got sent back to the respective communities. And it was a sort of a distribution. Uh, it was a sort of a, 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 a program for the good of the community. So the governor's feast uh, was a table of benevolence, all right? And there was another reason. This is really important. The governor's feast was not only a, a table of benevolence, it was a table of power. Because you see, attendance at the banquet was mandatory. If you didn't show up, the governor would follow up. That's how the governor kept his eyes on the territory. <laughs> That's how he kept his eye on his rivals. You keep your friends close, and you keep your enemies closer. Keep your eye on them. And every day there was roll call. Okay? All this food had to be paid for. And Nehemiah makes it clear in these verses that other governors who served before him taxed the people. So in addition to the taxes that went to Susa, Nehemiah had the right to levy an additional tax for the, on the people to pay for this power feast. And Nehemiah waived his right. He paid for it out of his own pocket, which, which meant he would have had a good salary. 
And he paid for it out of his own pocket instead of taxing the people. And why did he do this? Verse 15. Because of the fear of God. That's why. When others would lord it over people, I did not because I love God. And I respect him and I want to please him. I just want to help God's people. Remember, for my good, oh God, all that I've done to this people. So the fear of God led Nehemiah to demonstrate the goodness of God. See, are are we getting a better picture of what biblical fear is about? Nehemiah doesn't see God as the cowardly lion quaking before the great and mighty Oz. Nehemiah's fear of God comes from a heart of love and awe and worship. And his fear led him to be careful and conscientious. His fear came from a desire to be close to God. It it came out of his closeness to God. And the result is that Nehemiah was a fountain of life and others were nourished by his activities. Listen, fearing the Lord doesn't mean that you will never again feel any fearful emotions in the face of troubling circumstances. No. Rather, the fear of the Lord is a posture of your heart in the face of life's fearful situations. It's it's realizing that even when you stand before something fearful, there is one greater who stands beside you. It's trusting and depending and loving and worshiping and obeying and honoring God above all else, even when what you face seems too hard or too frightening. And it also means that your lesser fears won't rule you. Instead, you will hand them over to the one who is ruler over all. That's why someone called Nehemiah the very best king Judah never had. And out of his genuine love for God, he deliberated. And then after he deliberated, he advocated for God's word. And then his life demonstrated God's word in play. God's goodness. He waived his rights to serve the hungry and hurting. You know, Nehemiah sets the table for the feast of Christ. See, after all, the Lord Jesus Christ, he set aside his privileges And he put on flesh. And he served those who were hungry and hurting because of sin. Jesus would one day charge into the temple and overturn the money tables and all. And and yet, you know, Mark's gospel tells us that he he just didn't fly in there. Uh, He went in the night before Palm Sunday. Saw the tables. Then he came back the next day. That's called deliberation. He deliberated on Sunday before turning them over on Monday. And yes, yes, we know Jesus advocated for his Father's will. And even the night before his crucifixion, he said, Not my will, but thine be done. And then Jesus demonstrated, demonstrated a life solely devoted to his heavenly Father by his death on the cross. Though Nehemiah ordered a daily feast and paid the check With his own hand, Jesus ordered the eternal feast and paid for it with his own blood. And so, brothers and sisters, I tell you, have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
But he emptied himself and taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that is the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Amen. I'm done.